Hello, and welcome to The Luck, with me, Nina Power, and Helen Rollins. Benjamin is away this week, though uh, he will surely be back soon, and in the meantime I will mimic his uh, fabulous, uh, smooth jazz introductory voice to the best of my ability. And now I sound like a Radio 4 announcer. Uh, <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs> no, I can't. But did you know that women's voices on the radio, there's a really interesting book by Anne Karp called The Human Voice, yeah. and she discusses this, and she um, looks at the way, the pitch of women's voices mm-hmm. on the radio, and it just kind of goes down and down and down and down. Really? So, it yes. is fascinating, because there's all those, you know, those like radio for in-betweeners, you know, the bits that do in-between, uh, or the news women, and it's it's so strange. You know, they have this one woman in particular. Again, we were talking about you just did a lecture on music, the inability to talk about music with words, but it's like the inability to talk about this voice. But yeah, it's very soothing. Yes, but and it's authoritative. Like, what is the deep, the deep female voice, and why is the you know? I mean, as someone who's had my laugh routinely impugned in a legal case, no less. Um, you know, there's something so offensive apparently about the sound of my laughter, but I actually think it's more the sound of women's laughter when it upsets men. You know, that, that some men feel the laughter of women as this kind of incredibly. It is. I mean, I think there is a thing of men being afraid or like having some like visceral yes. thing. It's humiliating or something. Yes. I mean, there, I guess there's that Margaret Atwood quote, which is very famous, I suppose, that, you know, men fear that women will laugh at them, women feel that men will kill them you know, mm-hmm. very uh, sort of second wave feminist quote, um, but quite accurate, um, possibly. I'm just wondering whether we should, um, you know, practice speaking in lower voices. Now I'm kind of... Do you think so? I I, I noticed that um, recently my voice sounds lower than it used to, but I don't know why that is. But then sometimes, I don't know, I have I have heard myself sometimes with like a really, really squeaky voice. But apparently as well, you hear yourself lower than you are in reality because, you know, you get the sort of vibrations within you all. But, you know, you actually, so so your actual external voice is higher pitched. Than... Oh, no, that's terrible because my voice is already pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> also, when you just speak different languages, it's funny. I um, When I speak French, I have like a really stupid child high pitched voice. And when I speak Spanish, apparently I sound, and I actually think it's probably true, like a decrepit old woman, like a 90-year-old. So I'm like, right. probably, you do apparently, I don't know what, what that's to do with, the shape of your mouth, yeah. or whether you've been taught by somebody who speaks in a like, sort of like, you know, I've got a stupid... I, I think I must have been taught French by a total slut then, because uh, like when I speak French, it is very much like this. <laughs> It's que vous me compongez, you know. It's like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, I like it. <laughs> I like it. Like I've smoked, you know, a thousand gitans. Yeah. I sing chansons in the local cafe, and you know, my love life is in disarray, and <laughs> so on. Sounds fun. Yes. No, I definitely. I had. Uh, I had. I had uh, one French teacher that was so, so, so mean, and she actually goes down in infamy. If anybody was taught by Madame Pinner, I hope Madame Pinner never listens to this podcast. But I had her for five years, and I actually taught people whose who's an all-girls school, whose sisters had been taught by Madame Pinner, and everybody remembers her. Absolutely terrifying. You do homework, and then she would spend the entire lesson tearing each person's homework. So she'd take the stack of books to the front, and she'd open it, and like li- literally ridicule, humiliate you, and then throw the book at you. And I remember one time, I must have been like, eight or nine um I'd spent rest I spelt restaurant wrong and I can't even remember what it was I put maybe an extra I'd taken the u out or put an extra vowel in or something and I can't to this day remember what I did but it was it was so weird it was such a, an excruciating experience and you knew you know if she got to your book it was going to be sort of 10 10 minutes of uh, for at least everybody everybody in the class was in on it and you know everybody was sort of empathetic or whatever but she was so mean. I'm surprised. That then, like, it's always my favourite subject. So how the fuck did... I must be, like, a sadist. No, but I think... Or masochist the, or whatever the, it is. The, the, <laughs> you're the psychoanalyst. Get, get, get it the wrong way around. <laughs> um, no, but that's good. That means your love of the subject transcended the yes, you know, exactly. contingent horror of its teaching. I mean, I... Oh, I actually have another funny story, by the way. Go on. That <laughs> So we were... Um, we used to drive to go on holiday to various places in France, sometimes we'd be skiing, we'd drive. And um, 
we would stay on the way at this like hotel that had a nice restaurant at one time that hotel was fully booked. So we had to go to this horrible, horrible, horrible auberge up a road that was like The Shining. We were the only people in the hotel. We all thought we were going to die overnight. We were surprised to have awoken like alive in the morning. We thought there were werewolves everywhere. I mean, I must have been about like 10 or whatever. And it was sort of like the breakfast was like tinned fruit. <laughs> so it was absolutely disgusting and like scary and like 70s horror. And then um, I think it was on the parents' evening at one time at my school, my parents would my dad was sort of saying, it was so funny. We went to this in the middle of nowhere French hotel and it was such a shit show and ha ha ha. And it had turned out that Madame Pinner had had her wedding at that hotel. Wow. No wonder so she was. She's a, were- she's a werewolf. <laughs> maybe, maybe that explains her bitterness towards your homework. She also, we did a French exchange and she thought we were all like spoiled little kind of private school spoiled girls and we need to be shown sort of reality. She's sort of like communisty. And um, she, she literally the school that we. <laughs> long story. We're never going to have to eat the podcast. Oh. I've got so many little anecdotes from this fucking French exchange, and um, including going on a motor, being put on a motorbike, not being able to like understand, holding on the back. And <gasps> um, yeah, anyway, and I still love French, and I still love France, and it's always been my favourite subject. So there you go. Right. I'll end. I'll end. End. End the French. Yeah, educational anecdotes there. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, I sort of had a, t- I guess, probably a typical experience of learning French at school, which was pretty limited, and we probably learnt how to buy a strawberry ice cream about three thousand times, and nothing else. And then the only time I really learnt any French was I worked for two months in a syndicat d'initiative, like a tourist. Oh office. my god, the syndicat d'initiative! Everybody knows, but nobody actually says that. Right? I know. <laughs> I think it was an office du tourisme in the Loire, yeah. in the Loire Valley, and I worked there. It was like the town, you know, when you have um, what do you call it, twin towns. It was the yeah, twin yeah, town yeah, of, yeah. of my school's <laughs> town, and so I went there, and I, um, I earned thirty euros a week, and I stayed on a farm. And I had terrible insomnia and I had my very first migraine. And I think it was actually as a consequence of having to speak and listen to French all the time that my brain literally rewired itself. And I've never had such a visceral experience of my own brain. It was really, <laughs> really strange. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it was quite good. I mean, I learned, I did learn some French and then I translated some Badiou. I mean, I wouldn't, and other things, but I wouldn't say I was a magnificent <laughs> French speaker. Um, but yeah, it was kind of cool. I felt very adult. Being going yeah. there, I said like a, I think I was probably twenty or nineteen. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. It is. Yeah, I have to say that I do. That is one place I miss going to, mm. France, since the lockdown. Yeah. So you know. Anyway, should we get on to the next? Yes, we, topic? we've already we've already ruined the format, or we've we've we've, we've subverted well, it. This is the this is the exception that proves the rule. Oh, know? and also, I mean, the topic for today is failure, at least for the first okay. part. So, so, um, so we we chose the film The Canyons, directed by Paul Schrader, with a um, a, the the script written by Brett Easton Ellis, and starring in inverted commas, Lindsay Lohan and James Dean. I think, uh, possibly slightly disgraced porn star um and set in la in the environs of the film industry um yes i mean it's it's a colossally sort of nothingy film i mean it's it's despite all of those kind of great things those great ingredients or potentially great ingredients um it's a film that very much fails but the kind of interesting question is why does it fail i have lots of theories as to why it fails Mm. and i think a film failure at that level particularly when you see it in the acting you see these these actors and lizzie lohan is a is a good actress it's not acting because there's nothing to act there's no there's no subtext i think the script is a a total failure it's a a i think it fails on like a number of levels a there's no subtext so it's just it's just lines being said where there's nothing to act there's no duality of you know inner thought and what's being expressed or contradiction or anything Mm. and i I do think that 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 level of failure is always always in the script but also so so you know kind of i think it comes back to you don't give way in terms of your desire the the dialectic of desire with lacan because like you know 
mystery and it's sort of a thriller. It sort of takes the thriller vibe because it is withholding information. We're like, what's going on? But the information that's being withheld is not some like aspect of the story. So it's set up and we have, okay, right, this is a clear setting. These is, this is what, what it's about. This is the question that's being asked. The question isn't even fucking asked. <laughs> so, uh, so it's, there's too much withholding. And I think this sometimes happens where, you know, in, in, in storytelling, it was like, you know, you have to, you have to sort of withhold to engage your audience. That's absolutely, you know, you only, you only want to find out what you don't know, but you also have to, on the other hand, like incite something mm. and like generate the desire by giving a bit at the beginning. So it's sort of like, there's no, there's no inciting incident. There's no, set up there's no mystery it's just a series of what's and eventually something sort of interesting at the end happens but it's just it's it's literally as if i think a, a 15 year old wrote this it's sort of the thing that a sort of a 15 year old who thought i could make a film would write mm. the only other well one of the thoughts i had though was perhaps it's in fact an unbelievably genius film right in that one of one of the things that is definitely about or could be seen to be about is the collapse of film the collapse of cinema mm -hmm. right so you have at the beginning an interspersed footage or uh, still shots of um closed cinemas in america and they're actually very beautiful shots it's very very beautifully shot and you know you're reminded because it's schrader of um the opening of Blue Collar and other films where he kind of depicts, let's say, the the sort of production or the, the you know, the the factory, as it were. And, and here then the cinema is 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 over. And and obviously that's kind of repeated as a thought throughout the film in terms of the replacement of cinema with text. You know, so and and it's I guess from twenty fourteen, is it? Or no, it's twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. I think they shot it in twenty twelve and it came out in twenty thirteen. Right. So even from our standpoint in twenty twenty one, the the use of mobile phones and text, I mean it that sort of stuff dates really badly, really quickly, right? Because of the you know rapid pointless innovation yeah exactly <laughs> um so there's something kind of very clunky about the depiction of the use of text messages but it does capture i think the transition between different forms of media which i which is surely part of the point that trader is trying mm -hmm. to make or brett easton ellis is trying to make which is a transition and so so in a way to make a film about the death of cinema you know and to make a film that in a way looks like it fails because it's so banal and and um see-through and almost like watching a reality TV show like it's almost like Lindsay Lohan and James Dean are playing themselves um and and you know I was looking up the trivia that you get on Amazon mm -hmm. Prime um and the, basically all the trivia was like yes Lindsay Lohan was drunk all the time and and she was just really badly behaved and she just didn't turn up to things and she was out with Lady Gaga and she was just you know <laughs> like this is just and and but so in a way her character sort of she is her character like there is no mm -hmm. gap if you like there's no mystery there's none of this promise you know they're flat they're completely flat characters right and everything they do you know they they have threesomes that are organized through you know early versions of ten Tinder or whatever right um they take drugs they drink they sort of they they have affairs or relationships, but none of those seem comprehensible at all. Like, you don't have any idea why they like the other person or love them or what the attraction or the obsession is. Um, because everybody is completely flat and one-dimensional. And and in a way, but maybe that is the point of the film. Maybe it's sort of deliberately a bad film. So I think, I think this is very true. There's some aspects. So I think the way that it was financed, I think the premise, and I think after sort of mulling it, you sort of get that, that premise. And I think that's absolutely right that there's, there is a commentary going on and the way it was financed, the fact that it was deliberately sort of independent, the actors were paid a hundred dollars a day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think though, it misses the whole point, the film of what films do to get a message across. Like, so that, you know, the film, I think, has a certain architecture that gets you to invest on such a like libidinal level that then it can play on your desire and then have this intense revelation. So I think that anything can be said through the medium. Obviously, within our cultural setting, it tends to be more of the same thing. You know, the sort of, um, Hollywood-esque, um, totalitarian, um, I say that, I mean, capitalistic totalitarian vision. But that, but I actually think that that's, 
not what cinema's best at. I think it's cinema's best at the opposite, sort of revealing a lacking desire. But I think that it could do all of those things amazingly and be one of the best commentaries on cinema. And I think Paul Schrader is certainly capable, of course, of doing it. I can't like I can't mm. believe this is the same director as First Reformed, although there yeah. are some aspects to it where you're like, okay, you know, that's sort of well shot or, you know, w- whatever. But, um, and maybe the material was so bad that he got something out of it that was better, you know, that was speaks to sort of an impressive directorial ability. But I think that like a film is capable of doing all of this, those things if the medium's used properly and it's understood properly. Like, for instance, there have been a few films recently, um, which is sort of like, um, ostensibly like anti-capitalist or making a commentary on neoliberalism, for instance. Sorry to bother you. Not sorry to bother you. Yes, sorry to bother you. Have you seen it? It's the um, Boots Riley film about a uh, cool centre person and it's sort of like magical realist in a way. And I think it, it, it's it's got aspects of brilliance and it's like it had these artistic flourishes and it ha- it's saying something interesting, but I think it fails at using the medium, which is a sort of like desire machine mm-hmm. to, to get us to really... Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the reason why the design machine is good because it is because it shows our lacking desire and that's why it's so compelling. But I think that often sometimes it's like that the theme, because I think the theme is there, you know, as you say, it's repeated like, oh, you know, cinema's dead, haven't you heard? All the cinemas are closed yeah. and this kind of stuff. But like, I think that in a way, you know, it's sort of like a poem rather than a film. Ooh. You know? Ooh. <laughs> but also, did you see, did you see the, did you see the Kanye West, uh, scored trailer no damn it he, he took it upon himself to sort of do a, do a trailer with a sort of like it's not got any rap on it but it's got his sort of yeah like some of the music in the film is very good actually. yeah yeah first thing it has aspects like yeah. it has although sometimes the sound design oh my god there's a bit of the mm. beginning i think in the chateau marmont or whatever and it's like so bad but it, 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 it is sort of a bit like I would just imagine they got to a stage of being like, right, fuck this, whatever. Because <laughs> it's just sort of like, it's sort of like five, five seconds of chatter track, like over on a loop. It's, it's horrendously bad. Mm. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe it's some kind of like commentary. Well, I mean, I think it's certainly amenable to that reading. I mean, perhaps it's being too kind, but I, I think even, I mean, Brett Easton Ellis doesn't disavow the film. In fact, I think he, he thinks it, that it's good, or he he likes it, you know. That he thinks so. Yeah, so is Paul Schrader, I think. Yeah, and and so, I mean, not that that should necessarily determine how how we feel about it, but you know, if and I suppose it's this question of of maybe the what failure is. I mean, is it does it matter if something fails to entertain us? You know, are we just looking for something? that appeals to us and if so why and and actually perhaps this is some like extraordinary adornian attempt to describe the the broken hole you know through the the, the collapsing of this one medium <laughs> medium into another you know and, yeah. and what is the text you know is it is it in fact saying you know that the text-based economy whether it's a libidinal economy or a romantic economy or an organisational economy or whatever, that, you know, clearly something of romance and the mystery of cinema, the promise and of cinema itself is lost in that transition to the, mm-hmm. the text. And, and there's a moment where Lindsay Lohan is watching like a horror film and the text message is somehow linked to her TV and the text stops the film and she gets mm-hmm. a text message on her mm-hmm. TV screen. And... Yeah, I, I must say, I, I mean, on the, on Lindsay Lohan, I do feel very um, strangely affectionate towards her as a as a person. I feel like I sort of understand her pain, which is, of course, completely illusory. Of course, I, I don't um, in any way. But I, I do sort of have this deep sort of warm kindness towards her. I don't know why. <laughs> I know. Well, I actually thought she was all right in this. I thought mm. she she definitely carried carried it more than other actors. The thing is, though, that I would say is, unless we were doing it for the podcast, I would have turned it off. Yeah. Like, I was not invested at all. In fact, I probably stopped it about three or four times and then went to other things and came back to it. So does it, does it feel, you know, does it have to, in order to, to I mean, is watching it a prerequisite for a conveyance of some kind of meaning or ideas? Plus, we don't even need to place. watch it. 
<laughs> it's just an artifact out there. Yeah. Um, but the thing is as well, I mean, it would have certainly, I'm guessing, because it has sort of slightly occult status mm-hmm. in a way, maybe made its money back, which is a massive feat in and of itself, especially mm-hmm. for a tiny film. Although, of course, it has Lindsay Lohan, Paul Schrader, Bretty Tzanella, so it would be a bit of a disaster if it didn't do that. But maybe it didn't even make its money back. I mean, I found it somewhere online you know quote yeah unquote. no i yes i don't know i don't know about the finances um of it um i mean i think money you know money is a theme in the in the in the film um in terms of it still seems to be better to make money as an actor like people it's still that i the fantasy of hollywood that people go yeah. there to become an actor yeah. but they have to do all this kind of grunt work and you know lindsay lohan is with the sort of sociopathic porny guy because He's rich, fundamentally, mm-hmm. even though she mm-hmm. loves the twinky, you know, other guy um, or whatever, you know, and that she used to go out with. And sociopath, porny, threesome guy is, um, yeah, I don't know, possessive and controlling and abusive and all of these sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's sort of never, you don't get any real insight into any of their souls <laughs> i mean there, there is the there is the as you said like a and i you know an aspect to it that's a commentary on the the uh let's say the um what would you say um surplus value of hollywood yeah <laughs> where the exploitation is happening as you say that somebody has to basically effectively prostitute herself to somebody who is sort of pimp-esque let's say mm. um and yeah you have the informal prostitution all that kind of stuff so there is that, and obviously, I mean, maybe Paul Schrader has some interesting investments in, you know, political things, things that are that are less uh, mainstream, let's say, in Hollywood that sort of paints the, the you know, I think I think the most um, ideological and capitalistic film of the last, I don't know since when, but maybe ever that I've ever seen is La La Land, which is obviously the opposite of this, you know, it really um, papers over uh, the... The, what lies beneath even though sort of it does it part of the reason I don't like is it kind of like pretends that it doesn't it pretends that it's sort of like oh she's so struggling it's like no she isn't you know <laughs> it's, all, it's all sort of like um made all right in the end by this sort of like um really unexplainable and silly success that she seems to um fantasize after is and like her whole goal in the film is to be the person who can go into the Warner Brothers lot and get a coffee and be sort of like, oh, have a free coffee and oh, isn't she famous? Which I think is just, in a way, it reveals it reveals the absolute horror of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting reading. Definitely. What do you think? Though? I mean, part of me is like a little bit confused as to what it's actually in terms of. Okay, thematically, I think it's quite clear. Mm-hmm. This is maybe what I mean is that there's no subtext, as in this. What would usually be subtext? as in the theme, it's just all there, it's just theme. Yeah. But what, what would you, what would you, because I'm still a bit confused as to what the story is. <laughs> you know, like. Well, it's it's partly about obsession. Yeah. You know, it's got that sort of idea of like, you know, men being obsessed with women and, you know, wondering what they're up to and stalking them and wanting to control them. I suppose so. So it's sort of the idea of a kind of mystique or a mystery that the Lindsay Lohan character is supposed to contain. I suppose because I I agree because I think it would be it would have been interesting to do have done like a complete thriller genre mm. film of it's about obsession that's like has this illusion of a thriller and then it's all revealed that there's nothing there. He's just basically mm. obsessive about and there's there's no mystery. Or on the other hand, I thought that the the way it ended was really interesting with the. That he basically murders this girlfriend of this other guy and gets away with it, and then you know at the end another woman turns up, and it looks like the same thing's going to sort of repeat itself. And Lindsay, the Lindsay character, sort of in a position of the person who has been murdered, and I think that would be kind of interesting about sort of sociopathic, a sociopathic, spoiled, you know, like it's sort of an American psycho type thing. Yeah, but it is. It's I'm not kind of in terms of like the beginning, middle, and end. I'm I'm sort of confused. <laughs> what it what like happens you know yeah i mean in a way not much happens i mean the murder is sort of gratuitous and and you don't even i don't even really understand why he murders this woman to be mm-hmm. honest i mean she, no i do i'm, I'm it doesn't really make any sense um 
you know, unless you're supposed to think, well, he's just purely sociopathic. But then even still, you know, there, there would presumably be some motive that you could adduce even if it was completely wrong and crazy. Um, yeah, so that just seemed a bit unnecessary, really. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I suppose the, the broader question, though, like of of failure, I mean, I'm kind of quite... I'm very interested in failure because I think we've, we've discussed it before on the show, but, like, you know, in a, in a culture or an atmosphere in which everyone, particularly, I guess, people younger than me, so, like, millennials and, you know, we talked about this before, but, like, are encouraged in a way to succeed and, like, everything is geared towards some future um, success or whatever, um, to fail or to choose to fail, I suppose, is quite an interesting option or quite an interesting approach I suppose I don't know it's like yeah it's interesting because um there's that very big podcast how to fail have you heard this no it's quite well-known um uh author who hosts it and I think though that this what it does is it's sort of like it's you know like there's all these sort of like self-help movements like um instead of doing this have you tried this and again it has the same and there's a little blurb that she says at the beginning of the podcast that I mean, it's interesting. I think she gets interesting guests and stuff, but it's it's sort of like within all you have to do, it's still that progress narrative, the sort of ideology of promise of like, if you um, are okay with failing, you're more likely to succeed. So basically she takes famous people who are really successful, who talk about all the times that they failed. And of course, the thing is, like everybody fails, but some somebody has not failed at making 100 million or somebody mm. has not failed at being a t- New York Times bestseller, but they failed in all sorts of other ways. And sort of it, 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 it's a weird like ideological legitimation in this sort of the same, this woke age of, oh, this person suffered as well. And so they can't be critiqued. And also it kind of is like, well, all you have to do is tolerate failure a bit more and then you'll get there. So it's still within mm, this sort of yeah. ideology. So it's interesting how, like, and I guess this is, this is the thing about the way capitalism works and the ideology of promise and the sort of libidinal investment in, you know, a utopian whatever or closing the gap of lack, that you can kind of turn anything into a mechanism for success. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, so it's, it's never like it, when, when we talk about failure and failure as an alternative to success, it's like, can somebody who's still invested in like a sort of an ideology of promise ever really accept failure other than a failure on the way to a success you know so it's like failure actual failure like proper failure you know yeah no no and I think that's that's right I mean I think that's an interesting tension or question for everybody in a way like you know even what I'm saying now like you know wanting to I don't know, defend failure or glorify failure or something. I mean, it's, of course, like completely paradoxical. I mean, proper failure is, isn't redeemable, right? I mean, if yeah. you, if you fail, I don't know, at, um, I don't know, maintaining your health and you just become ill and die or if die. you fail <laughs> yeah. at, I don't know, like you, if you <laughs> fail at keeping your job, you don't get your job back. You just don't have a job yeah. anymore or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, or you fail at your relationship and then it's over. Um, and you might learn things, but that wouldn't be the point. I suppose it's like, what is a an abject failure, I suppose we would say? Abject failure. A, yeah. a failure that cannot be re-recuperated. Because <laughs> there's so many, there are so many productive failures, though. Like, because in, in a sense, like, everything is because of a failure. You know, at a certain mm. point, we we fail, we fail to communicate, so we have to speak. Yes. You know, we fail at, well, actually, my ex-partner... I did not speak until he was four, quote unquote, because he's so lazy. But also, also we're not we're not acrimonious. We're actually best friends. But he, because he um, never failed to communicate, because he had an older sister who he was the youngest. There was a big age gap, and the older sister kind of really protected him. And he sort of managed to sort of employ her in a way as her sort of his personal gopher. So he'd be like point grant, and she would get it for him. So he never he never failed at communicating, and therefore he never learned to speak. Ooh. So also, you know, when we're children, there has to always be some kind of productive failure in parenting. You know, the Winnicott good enough parent. If you're yeah. too good at parenting, you'll end up with sort of some kind of psychotic child that never, you know, that never separates from their mother. You know, so we, failures are always good, you know. And there's also mm. there's a, a, the, a Winnicottian kind of idea that I really like, fear of breakdown which is a problem that a lot of people have 
where they have experienced a primordial breakdown pre-language. They really, um, a time when they, they, they all really fell apart because they didn't have sort of an, an ego sealed at a certain point and that nobody was there to, to help them. And they sort of had this experience within them. And then the rest of their, throughout their adult life, they kind of have experienced this breakdown and are totally af- afraid it's going to happen again, but it, it won't. It has happened sort of like the, um, the apocalypse has already happened. Yeah. But that fear often prevents the necessary breakdown. That's a defense against a breakdown that's already happened. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like the, that, that fear that the failure was in like an actual new breakdown would be very productive in order to get beyond the fear of breakdown. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. No, as, as Lang would say, sometimes a breakdown is a breakthrough. Exactly. But yes, but I think it's very interesting to recognise, you know, at what point did, like you say, did the ba- did a breakdown or did the breakdown occur? Because it might not be where you think it was, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, so if you have a moment or a, a period where, let's say, things can't go on in one way or yeah. another, let's say your health collapses or you can no longer carry on being the person that you were or doing the things that you did or, you know, something collapses, I suppose, like some principle of reality fails and you're unable to fulfil your role, I guess. And Benjamin always talks about social role, you know. But um, is it at that point that you've broken down or is it at the starting point where you start to begin to be unable to do your job, Mm -hmm. let's say, or... Or when, you know, because it's, I think people, you know, the, the idea of a breakdown and, and, you know, I was just looking up the etymology of fail and it, it originally comes from um, possibly to like to fall or to stumble, you know, and is the stumble, you know, does it, is it the actual stumble or is it the bit before you stumble, if you see what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Or is the ad- adaptation, the sort of like imperfect adaptation that brought you to a point where then you had to have all these mechanisms that were making you ill and therefore you had to break, was the, was the break, was the failure at that point, you know? <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I think this is, I think this is absolutely true. I think it's a very, this is the thing, I mean, and I had some kind of like, um, ideas written down about like a, a failure, <laughs> a failure to accept ambivalence yeah and the way this relates to failure is that in terms of like we live in this ambivalent contradictory world where we don't know what is a success and a failure and inner success is a failure and failures produce success and i think that this inability to to see the world in sort of a in a synergism so i think part of the problem with the left and we're going to talk about um Bezos buggering off to Mars and, you know, whilst everybody else is fucking starving and, you know, the climate is in a catastrophe and everything. Um, and that, you know, it's a political failure, really. I think it's just this cringy, horrible political failure is an inability to, to tolerate ambivalence at the level of the political and to understand ambivalence and to understand that, for instance, Hegel was not about synergy it was the kind of the opposite it's syllogism which is holding two contradictory truths in your head at the same time and i think that the inability to tolerate ambivalence it goes hand in hand with this capitalistic logic of the hegel's bad infinite of sort of a lack a gap and closing the gap with some commodity to feel better Mm -hmm. and i think for instance you know we see today what kind of economic situation we're in situation if you will you know like i think people were posting yesterday about how you know how much billionaires wealth has gone up this year Mm. and obviously but oh no we have gay pride and we have all these things and isn't that great but what the problem is i think is that in terms of activism politics and how it can be co-opted by capital is that the it's never total enough because it doesn't tolerate lag just as the opposite can be totalitarian the conservative backlash and they're sort of like interlashing let's just say and it doesn't tolerate the fact that humans experience ambivalence at the level of their subjectivity because they're born twice and the second birth involves failure you know the first birth involves a failure we're born too soon you know we stand up we have two big heads it's it's a biological failure so we're born too soon and then we're fetuses with our mother for say 18 months and then at a certain point there's a separation or a, a failure in terms of you know i don't know what our father gets in the way or symbolic father or know of the father which can be feminine or whatever and then we have a, a second birth and the failure to communicate then creates language and so we have this antagonism if we have a biological reality often and then we have on top of that 
an inability to align with our biology and things like that. But I think the thing is that, let's say when things like, for instance, how some of the feminist movements got co-opted by capitalism, it's always this idea of not that women are just as shit as men and women deserve the same as men because they're just as much of a failure as men, but that this being who has been separate promises a whole and they can run things better. So it's always done Mm. as this totalitarian promise. And then it just becomes you know, another capitalistic fantasy, a new frontier, which is obviously racist, sexist and orientalist, actually, you know, in a way that maybe activist politics doesn't recognize that it is. But it's this inability to tolerate the fact that A, everything is dialectical, but B, humans experience ambivalence at the level of their subjectivity. And therefore, anything operates in oppositional directions. And when that's kind of understood, nothing can be taken as a singular totalitarian promise of the whole. So it can't be capitalized upon and it can't be like the system can perpetuate itself as long as women are in charge. And I think, I think, yeah, I think that failure to, obviously that's, I'm making a lot of logical jumps. So maybe listen to the previous 18 episodes. Put <laughs> 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 together logic, but, and maybe yeah, we'll keep talking about it, but. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. There's a, there's an awful lot in what you're saying. I mean, it, you know, I'm thinking it, in the first place, it's very interesting, like the fact of language or the entry into language. You know, Chris Davis says, um, before children speak, they're sad, like they become sad because they kind of lose one world and they have to, they're going into the other one. And, you know, it's a bit depressing, to be honest. Yeah. And, yeah. and she says this, this is felt as, as sadness, you know, and, but, but on the other side, you know, the, the entry into language is also the possibility of language as a form of um, resistance in its ambivalence or mm-hmm. in the ambivalent quality of language, mm-hmm. I suppose, because I was I was thinking about the Victor Klemperer book, The Language of the Third Reich, and one of the things that Klemperer points out is that um, everything is written to be spoken, like or rather to be shouted, so that all language becomes like a, a, a political rally. And what you lose then is the kind of nuance of interpretation that you would get with language as reading. So obviously language can be totalitarian right i mean not only in its content but also in its form you know and and we can talk about order words or you know language as a, a series of of um um commands you know let's say so it's not that language isn't um it isn't well language is not always ambivalent right but i think there are there is a sort of resource within language as a form of resistance even in the continuing to speak like you know when um, Shazarazad mm-hmm. Sh- mm-hmm. saves herself from you know being killed by speaking <laughs> like the filib- yeah. the filibuster as um you know uh, not being killed strategy and it, i think this when people sort of dismiss debate or dialogue they sometimes misunderstand the function of dialogue in its Absolutely. in its um in its role not less far less to do with content but as a formal warding off of yeah. other things which would be like to- totalitarianism in one direction or another whether it be mm-hmm. the recourse to violence instead of speech whether it be um you know the f- form of domination of one person over another in which the other one person commands the other person yeah, uh, you know, so so in a way, the ambi- so I, I wonder. I'm just wondering about this relationship between ambivalence and dialogue and yeah. disagreement. You know, as a political, yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, there's a, a book by um, somebody I can't remember Noel. Somebody she's at, I believe, uh, Emory University in America. Um, a book about the fear of breakdown and relation to politics. And it's literally about this very thing and uh, political failure of our age. Mm. We live in this really monologic age. Twitter as a monologue, social media as a monologue, you know, hear my story, believe every, you know, I think this is something that needs to be understood by the left, that it is patronizing. It is frankly racist, sexist, orientalist, all those things to accept a person at their word, because then they are only either an angel or a child yeah they are not an, uh, not a divided subject and therefore they're not human and every in order to have a conversation you have to have a dialogue with somebody who is also lacking mm. or divided ambivalent at the level of their subjectivity hegel talks about this a lot um you know master slave dialectic etc and how systems fail when you have one that is considered a lesser um a slave would not be a divided subject it would be a whole you know we talked about um Roma and the Cleo character a couple of mm. weeks ago. 
that, you know, that she's a servant, she's a slave. And that, that, um, intolerance or not reading every single speaking person who exists as the lacking divided subject that they are and that that's a good thing you cannot have dialogue and then you will not be you will not see your own content like you go to therapy in order to have a dialogue because somebody else is needed just you know you are always an invested party in yourself like you're blind in many ways to yourself and you need the other we Mm -hmm. need each other we need dialogue and i think we have this looking down you know i think the um identity politics is a highly monologic um ideology it's sort of i am this i know myself i'm this and 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 i'm not divided um i see it all all the time you know these confessionals we talked about young women's art is often just this confessional art which i think is also mm-hmm. like frankly fucking sexist if anything sexist and i, I there's a, a, an event here that is um a radio program which is people give a sort of like a monologue about an event that happened to them and i think it is actually reactionary yeah no i i agree and i think it's it's interesting the difference let's say between the monologue and the story like mm-hmm. i was thinking about um the work of douglas copeland actually um, not just Gen X, but some of his later novels. And, and a lot of them actually try to deal with this idea of wanting to tell stories as a form of social gesture. That in a way, like at the end of history, all you can do is tell stories, but they're not stories that are purely introverted confessions or autofiction necessarily. They might be about the person, but they're in, the point is they're in communion with the group when they're telling stories, uh, his characters. And, you know, it's a quite subtle difference, maybe. Um, and maybe there are monologic elements, but I think it's different. It's a different, um, era slightly that precedes this one, which is much more mm-hmm. text based, as in the film, you know, much more, yes, assertoric, much more, um, yeah, individualistic and sort of statement based. Yeah. The, the I am X, yeah. you know. Yeah, And I think this is the thing, I think maybe this is where I think the fa- film failed because I think film has developed as a collective medium and there's loads of different ways that it operates on a universal level. You know, so film is a universal language, quote unquote. Uh, we all lack, we all experience lack, which creates desire. Film operates on our lacking desire and sort of like hitches a ride on it to c- can sometimes give us like really interesting revelations and i think this sort of like beyond beyond i i mean i'm very pro logic and very pro reason and stuff but i think there's something about in bringing people in on a level beyond reason does you know it involves it involves it's not just a sort of like i'm this i'm going to control this but as soon as you know the films on the screen anybody can sort of have their their writerly fantasy readerly fantasy in the body's in sense or whatever but like um yeah, I think that, yeah, statements or take me at my word. Mm. Well, the funny thing is, take me at my word. Words, if you are a human being, you speak, you will, unless you're highly psychotic, for example, you will f- slip. So take me at my word. Yes, I'll take you at your word, actually, which might be very different from what you think you're controlling. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's almost a, yeah, definite, I don't know, fear of, that's ambivalence, isn't it? I mean, it's like how to ward off the, you know, and Absolutely. because in a, in a sense, I mean, you know, if people sort of walk around saying things <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and nobody challenges them um, for reasons that are unclear, like because it's too much hassle, because you don't want to get involved, because, mm-hmm. I don't know, you don't want to upset somebody, you know, I mean, that's not good. I mean, people go wrong all the time. I mean, everybody does. Like, people get delusions, however little, constantly, you know, or, you know, like, even amongst friends, like, I've I've seen very few people, really, in a certain sense, like everybody in the last mm-hmm. 18 months or whatever. And, you know, you get into loops with the people that you talk to a lot. And you, you start to notice sometimes that either you or the other person is becoming a bit obsessive about a particular topic. And it's fine to some extent, but then sometimes you're like, oh my God, are you still going on about this? Or can we talk about something else? Or, you know, and, but that's useful. Like you yeah, need it's a to, symptom you, as well. Yeah. You need to interject. You need the other. Yeah. You need to interject to, in order to, for someone to recognize that they're doing that because they Absolutely. don't always know. I mean, I remember speaking to Alfie years ago and he was sort of, he was like in a moaning cycle. And I was like, Alfie, have you noticed that almost everything you're saying is like a complaint? And he was like, Oh no, I haven't, you know, but it, it takes the other to, to point out even something negative, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, 
and obviously our economic, I do think identity politics as a result it is part of liberalism and it's when things become so unequal and so unstable and so precarious that we turn to locking down identities and we can't tolerate. Precarity leads to an attempt to totalitarianize and to, to grab hold of, of anything and lock it down, which of course you never can have. As, you know, contradiction will always bite, reality will bite. And, um, totalitarianism is never total enough because it doesn't embrace lack. Lack will always, you know, come and bite you in your ass, basically. But we try to lock it and we cannot tolerate. We cannot tolerate it. And I think, you know, you have this whole libidinal sort of cycle of the, you know, quote-unquote right and the quote-unquote left. I don't think they're really either of those things. I just think that they're different forms of liberalism. But the point being is when everything is repressed to that extent and it's like, no, no, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And of course, the sign that's delivered and the words that are delivered are completely contradictory. Mm. And so that sort of ha 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 rightist is like, well, they do this, they do this. They, the enjoyment of pushing, uh, pointing out the contradictions, you know, is a lot. And one generates the other that generates the other. And it's a sort of massive cycle. But there are huge amounts of Freud. The more you try to avoid lack and ambivalence and contradiction, the more it will return, you know. And the part of the reason why I think a lot of conservatives get so annoyed with the SJWs, for example, is that the contradictions are there on the surface. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's kind of quite, but you can't point it out. You can't point it out. Even though pointing it out would be constructive so that we can get to the core of the problem, which is we've created a society that is precarious beyond the ability for people to exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And and in, the, in that sense, sympathetically, the clinging on to identity can be seen as something like a life raft mm -hmm. in the sort of linguistic economic sea, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, and I think it's, I mean, it is sometimes difficult to be sympathetic when there are, sort of forms of discourse pathology which are just very annoying like it is you know <laughs> I mean it is you know it's but, but yeah. it's kind of like you know how to sort of um understand what's going on at mm -hmm. a slightly different level not you know that's and that's not to say to be patronizing or to yeah. like you know but rather to sort of treat things sometimes symptomatically absolutely you know uh, or in an exemplary way rather than as as you know particularly specific instances Absolutely. i know it's because it's never personal you know no. it's, it's a symptom and also it's about a societal symptom but i think one of the critiques that i think a lot of the right will say or you know even like let's say the post left will be like oh but the people who you know engage in identity politics well it's an intra-class conflict these are mm -hmm. you know bourgeois offspring of bourgeois blah 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 but also one has to understand that they perhaps experience the greatest level of precarity of everybody because they have been, you know, promised so much or their whole reality identity has been um, connected to success, you know, to use the term that's the antithesis of the topic, you know, and, and also that they, um, the middle class is being completely eroded. So mm. I think there has to, obviously it can sometimes be, annoying when let's say the most successful of this class who you're like oh come on you blue tick person you have a whatever <laughs> column I don't really have sympathy but the level of precarity at all levels and I think the middle class and the offspring of you know it's I think we have to be empathetic yeah for sure and I know I mean you know if nobody expects you to succeed this is so yeah. much better I mean this is great <laughs> like I've said before but it's like no one expected anything of me and it's fantastic. You know, I like, I genuinely feel like I've existentially had an experience that is not longer, no longer really possible for mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in the middle class to have, which is like a kind Absolutely. of openness to existence and nobody expecting you to do anything. Or, or let's put it another way, people being happy, whatever you do. Yeah. Right. So if I'd stayed at home or stayed in my village, that would have been great. Or had I left school at 16, that would also be great. Had I gotten married young, that would be great. You know, like, mm -hmm. it's just, it, it, it's doesn't, it doesn't matter. This is like, yeah. this is like the AA insight or the quote unquote Christian insight, which is we are all sin, we sin without as in lack, and we are all accepted and we grace the acceptance of being accepted. 
And grace, I'm not religious, by the way, I say this all the time, but grace is a profoundly anti-capitalistic gesture, mm. the acceptance of acceptance. Yeah. And, um, no, but also, you know, capitalism as well, the success, the failure is in its success and the success is in its failure. So you think of, you know, the example of, um, aspirin. Aspirin is a drug that works. Right. But because it actually works and it gets rid of headache, you can't really capitalize on it because it, it just does it. So everything that works has to not work. Mm. It's the continuation of capitalism is in its failure. It's failure to close the gap of lack. And so we need something else. It's completely projecting forward into, you know, hate towards Hegel's bad infinite. And the good infinite is this acceptance. And it's the enjoyment of failure, enjoyment in the psychoanalytic term, where you, like the like Sisyphus, you are happy, you enjoy tarrying. Mm. Obviously, this is separate from, let's say, a socialistic world or some kind of better organized economical world where more people have more money and are more comfortable and less precarious, but you enjoy your enjoyment. And of course, then the stakes are lowered and you might suffer less and things like that, but not in a sort of an ideology of promise way, but just the, the circular, the subjectivity is within this sort of good infinite. Mm. You just, you do for doing and you enjoy it, knowing that they, that success will never close the gap of lack because you never can. So you just do it. Exactly. And I think as opposed to like imposter syndrome and precarity and all these things, yeah. if there was a way, and, and this is also, I think, a problem on the, on the left as well. It's very hard to talk about things like gratitude and acceptance and grace on the, on the left because in a way you're sort of conditioned to think that everything is awful. So to even accept anything about the world is like, reactionary or a failure Mm -hmm. you know or like a you know because you should be angry about everything do you see what I mean so like to to even say well I'm grateful for the sun shining or nature or friendship is like no but we we live under capitalism and it's really bad and all of those things are bad exactly with this but the funny thing is it's like that as well this is where you get the right-wing deviation of the left like it just because it's bad doesn't mean it's left you know it's it's sort of like Cynical doesn't mean it's left, you know. Like, for me, left, the left is about ambivalence. It's mm. about the toleration of contradiction. It's about tearing with the other. It's about dialogue. It's about understanding that lack inheres and you cannot overcome it. And that there's no utopia that will save you. And that is very actually, and I think this is the problem where the political, quote unquote, and activism politics isn't political at all because it's all about, it's, it's, highly capitalistic and this is where i think a lot of people who are sympathetic to certain movements were like oh well you know and then it's a shame because the corporations you know Mm. overtook it or whatever but it's like well no if there is any degree of promise in anything Mm. whether it starts from a place of cynicism if it can promise anything it can be capitalized upon end of like that's the logic of capitalism if you you put up a border you say on the other side is the place where your lack will be filled. Mm-hmm. And that could be, you know, through. And so so what we have now is like, yes, okay, we have, you know, gay rights, we have civil rights, we have women in the workplace and all this kind of stuff. But it's all tied to capital because it's done in a way where those things should be a given. They should be a given. And in a society where people are less precarious, they can be more accepting. And I remember talking to a friend whose parents were um, political activists in the 60s and, you know, sort of 67, et cetera, et cetera, 68, sorry. Um, and, you know, I would have a different, I would say that 68 was a floodgate mm-hmm. for neoliberalism, well-intentioned, but, and Lacan was very critical, you yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you aspire to is a master and you will have it. Yeah. So we have, now we have, we have emancipation without freedom. Mm-hmm. We are in capitalist unfreedom. You know, we are, the precarity makes us unfree. We, as you see in the Lindsay Lohan character, she has no choices. She has to prostitute herself. Mm. You know, we, ha- we, are, we are imprisoned by unfreedom, unbrackets freedom. And all of those things should be a given, as I said, in, in a stable, economically fair society where we can lower our, um, lower our sort of bound, you know, whatever and 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 have tolerance of for example the contradiction of let's say being a trans person who experiences a con you know the contradiction of sexuality at the level of their subjectivity great but what we have instead is this is a moral savior with a flag 
you know, flags tied to nations and, you know, flags are really sort of like, we're going to win this war and we're going to dominate. Mm -hmm. And it, as, as a transcendent promise of, you know, the, the feminism today, which is sort of like, if we have women in the workplace, if we have women leaders, you know, there are women leaders during COVID, and you're like, oh my God, can we not just read this as like <laughs> adults and say like, New Zealand is a tiny island in yeah. the middle of nowhere, like, well done, you you know, it's not because you're a woman. No, and she was also joking about putting people in camps to inject them. I mean, this is not, you know, <laughs> no, no, this ridiculous. is not lovely. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I think it's really sexist mm, no, to completely. not treat, to, to not read, to, to, to have this angelic female. Mm. And we cut, like the left, and you see this today, even, even we had sort of a wokeness and now we're sort of, I think, migrating away from a wokeness and sort of like, oh, well, maybe that's not the answer. Let's try something else. And it's sort of like, um, it's a fake Marxism that, that like isn't really Marxist because it doesn't in, involve all the things that we've been talking about. Mm. And so it uses all the language, but it does this. It's just a, it's just a capitalist gesture. It's a new frontier. And this is how, you know, we get these aesthetics of emancipation, but it's never, unless it does, tearing with contradiction, acceptance of lack, understanding that utopias can never exist, grace. Mm. It's not the left, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we there's perhaps a kind of further problem, which is how to differentiate if we wanted to a uh, form of left lack ambivalence, acceptance, and grace from a religious one, if you like, because mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, it's a, and, there, and there might not be a problem with that. I mean, I suppose we had that a few years ago where Shishek was talking to the radical orthodoxy people, for example, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, as a way of thinking, and I was very critical of that book at the time, actually. Um, but I wonder now if there might it might be worth going back <laughs> to that. Well, it's interesting because I think like Peter's involved in the stuff, and he was criticised for being for making like religious people feel clever. But I mean, he mm -hmm. he also had to not be open about his. Obviously, he doesn't believe in God, like duh. But you know, it, it, the way he did it because it all involved sort of like trans. He got a lot of people out of religion, but they had to think that he was believing and also have this sort of transference engagement for them to get to the point where now he can say yes, unbelievable. But it's also because we have what we have with with um, capitalism is a secular religion. As in, if we say religion is about yeah, well, this is actually because this is the thing with with like let's say radical theology is like if religion is about the ideology of promise heaven you know getting something that will cleanse your lack that will absolve you then is let's say some kind of organized structure but it's not religious or it could be religious who knows around something that's the antithesis of that is that religion you know yeah no no i i mean in a way it doesn't necessarily even matter i suppose no and i think this is you know like culture can do it yeah but that's what e eagleton was suggesting the other week that culture fails to to replace religion i suppose that was mm -hmm. one of the arguments and i think this is the thing because everything everything gets tied to capital like the state is tied to capital culture is tied to capital like and i think i th i honestly think the main problem is not necessarily that but just an in a failure of the left to read mar the market system for what it is mm -hmm. which is it like takes it too much at its word you know <laughs> not not its word word, but like the sense of its word, as in, and again, the market relies on our ambivalent, contradictory subjectivity. Yeah. And I think this sort of like, and this sort of annoys me maybe about like the analytic thing, it like it denies, it denies what the continentals brought to the table. <laughs> but it's almost like, it's almost like too difficult though for people to, mm. people to understand, but it's not, it's almost like the easiest thing. Accept your lack. Accept your lack, exactly. Okay, on on that note, we should wrap up the first hour. Okay. Um, but thank you for listening and join us on the B-side. We're going to talk about um, all of the billionaires going to space. Yes, we're going to talk about Skylack. <laughs> Skylight, yes. It's not the place that it promises to be, anyway. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye bye. Speak to you in a sec. Bye. <laughs>